Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Sounds a little prophetic, doesn't it? From the prophet Malachi in chapter 4 verse 9 of his book, he talks about how God would open up the storehouse and granted the context in which it was written was a little bit different, but don't you feel a little bit like that lately? Like God has just opened up the floodgates? And I'm just I'm going to say this as nice as I can. If you're going to pray for rain, carry an umbrella. If you're going to pray for rain, I want you to carry an umbrella because you have to believe that we have a God that is able to do amazing things. And I want us to be reminded that we have been praying for rain. And my prayer for each one of you is that every drop of rain that falls is a reminder of God's goodness. And so we can give thanks for the rain. And in theory, rain is really good because it waters things and makes things look green in an otherwise brown part of the country, but greenness has spread up, sprouted all over the place, and we give thanks for that. And I don't know about you, but now I'm kind of like, thanks God, you can turn off the faucet. But my prayer is this, that if, not when, but if the rain stops, that we can give praise and glory to God who allows it to rain, and He allows the rain to stop as well. So we give thanks for the blessings that we have. They, look, they come not only in the form of raindrops, and they're not only measured in tenths of an inch. Or The first year I was here, everything was measured in hundredths of an inch. Now we've just gone straight to the inch. It'll be to the foot in just a little bit. But we also can measure the blessings God has given us through people and through relationships, and most importantly, through His Son, Jesus. And so while you're here this morning, we are thankful for you, just as we're thankful for all the rain that falls. Let's begin with a prayer. Father God, we just give you praise for rain. We give you praise for relationships. We give you praise for your son Jesus. May he be glorified this morning. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. I am a self-proclaimed solophobe. Now, you probably don't recognize that term because I made it up. And someday, when that term has been coined, I can say this was my word from the beginning. It is not the fear of red plastic cups. It is something a little different. It is the fear of being alone. Does anybody have that fear? You can raise your hand if you have that fear. Some of you, you're so afraid of being alone that you don't want to raise your hand and let people know that you're afraid of being alone. I'm that person. I take it to a level that probably involves medication and maybe a long suit that ties like this. I don't like to be alone. I'm going to give you just a little glimpse of how much I don't like to be alone. It was, it was even worse when I was a kid. I don't like to go out to eat by myself now. I, I, I prefer not to. You won't see me at a movie theater alone. I just won't do it. It's not who I am. Some of you really like that. Okay? My wife, for instance, she likes being alone. For some of you people, it's why it's the only indoor lock in your house is the restroom. Because it's go to retreat from the kids. 
And you can hide out there for a while. Some of you enjoy alone. I don't like being alone. It was so bad when I was a kid, I could not stand being alone. I remember I'd go through the drive-thru. And I'd be pulling up, and I, I was always a big eater. A big, big eater. I could out-eat most of my friends pretty easily. And so I loved to get a lot of food. I would order two, three, four hamburgers. Arby's has the five for five when I was a kid, and I would eat all five by myself. I, I love doing that. But let me tell you a little bit about my loneliness, my fear of being alone. I would pull up to the drive through and so the person taking my order didn't think that I was going to go home and eat the food alone. I would order two drinks. <laughs> it's a sickness, and I'm working on it. But I don't like the feeling of being alone. My wife has been at a, a conference with several other ladies from here. They're heading back. I, I ask that, that you pray for them as they head back through the rain. But pray for me as I feel a little alone right now. I, I feel like it's me against three kids. I'm outnumbered. And so I, I feel a little bit alone. But I, I, I want to talk about the idea of why I feel it's really important that we search out people who feel alone and remind them that they are not. Because that is the lie of Satan he wants to convince you, is that you're alone. That through divorce, through loss, through kids leaving the house, through a husband who's always gone, sometimes you get to feel that you're alone. In fact, some of you can be in a room full of people and the overriding emotion that you have is, I am alone. But that's not really true. I've got Sam right here. <laughs> I'm just gonna, okay, I thought it was cutting out, so I need to turn this one off. Okay, I'm fading in and out. That's usually what you do about 10 minutes in is fade in and out. So, okay, are we, about, are we on now? We are not on. We're still not on. Hello, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? If you're on the front row, you can hear me just fine. If you're not, I've got, I've got two going on. Do I have it on mute? I don't. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. If it, if it doesn't work in a few seconds, we're just going to raise the volume of my voice. It's not on. It's okay. That's okay. Um, I want to talk about the idea of being alone. And so something happened several years ago that really, really changed how I thought about being alone. Uh, I was serving uh, as an involvement minister in, in Sweetwater, Texas, and the youth group was going on a trip, and I finagled my way to get to go on this mission trip because I love to go on trips and I love youth, and I thought this would be a good time to just kind of get away, not be alone, but just to get away and be around people and have a good time. And so we got there on Sunday night, and it was we were at this, this, this college in New Orleans, and it was kind of the meeting place. There's probably about 15 different youth groups. Everyone had brought, oh, between. And they'd all come together, and we would meet together, we would worship together, but then our groups would each go out, and we would work on a project. And for that week, we were working on a, a, a lady's house who people had come in to fix it. After, after the, the flood, the levee had broken, and instead of making it better, they made it worse. Okay, and then they charged her a lot of money for it. So she really needed some help getting her house fixed back up. And so we were there to fix it. So, but we would meet there for lunches and dinners 
And, but, but, during, but then we'd go out during the day. So we were there that, that first night. It was a Sunday night, and we got there, and everybody was going to meet in the cafeteria. Well, it just so happens that we had, I think, nine people we took on the trip, and the tables in which they had set up in this big cafeteria were big round tables, but really they only sat how many? Eight. Okay, it's like the Six Flags deal. Never go with an odd number. And I was the last one in. I thought it would be gentlemanly. Everybody went through. I go through last. They go to sit down. And there's eight there. Now they say, hey, let's scoot around and squeeze. And you can come sit here. We'll make room for you. And I said, no, that's okay. I'm going to go sit by myself. And as soon as I said that, my whole body just went, what did you do? So we're in this huge cafeteria, all these tables, all these youth groups are all sitting there, and here I am at a table for one. Big table, one person. And I felt the feeling that maybe you have felt before. I, I felt alone. And I began to wrestle with the idea of, why do I have to feel like people have to be around me? Why do I struggle so much with who I think that I am that I think that there has to be a person next to me in order for me to feel validated as a person? We are on. (laughs) To make me feel validated. So I decided, here's what I'm going to do. For the rest of the week, I'm going to intentionally sit by myself and I'm going to see what happens. For me, for others around me, I just wanted to know what would it be like if I'm in this huge room full of people who are all there for the same reason, which is to serve Christ and shine His light, how will I be treated? Now, just a few things. We were all dressed about the same. We looked about the same. We, I, everybody had a lanyard to get in there, so people know that, knew that I wasn't just off the streets. I was there with them. But it was amazing to see the reaction of people or the lack thereof. And so I actually, doing what only weird people do when they're alone, I started journaling. And I decided to keep a journal, and I want to share just a little bit with that with you, and this is a couple days after this had taken place. A table for one. Sitting alone again at breakfast is taking a toll on me mentally, emotionally, and even on some levels, spiritually. It's not so much the fact that I sat alone, but the realization that there are millions who eat, work, and live alone, and nobody seems to care. I've decided that people's unwillingness to engage me in conversation or even acknowledge my existence, boils down to one or two reasons. Either they don't know, or they don't care. I would like to give them the benefit, Jesus did so to His persecutors on the cross, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. But based on the stares and darting eyes, I have a difficult time believing that people don't notice that I sat alone at a table big enough for eight in the middle of the room. So there I was. But maybe, maybe they knew I was there, but, but maybe they didn't know or they had blocked out the feeling of being alone. Surely we have all had our moments before, whether we were in a large room full of hundreds 
or in a room void of any other humans. We despise it, hide it, run from it. It drives us to spend millions on headphones, MP3 players, music, TV, and hours of mindless surfing on the internet, uh, which disguises the feeling of utter loneliness. Tuning out the noise magnifies John Donne said, no man is an island, but breakfast has me searching for a kind word like a stranded man searches for passing ships. This morning, Thursday, marks the first words I've had all week at the table. After two hours of sitting with 150 people, I was spoken to, spoken to as a, a young girl walked by. She was uh, probably a junior or senior in high school. She walked by and she says, why do you sit by yourself? And I responded, because no one else will sit by me. She just kept walking. (laughs) The camp staff who I've worked with came and sat down by me. He asked me about my family and for the next five minutes we shared our lives. What a difference it makes to be noticed, for someone to ask and to listen to what, what I might have to say. I'm not suggesting that the gospel was just about socially accepting others, but Jesus showed the way to minister begins with making a connection. That was one of the most eye-opening weeks I had, was just sitting there alone at a table. And it wasn't only wrestling with my loneliness and my insecurities, but it was also recognizing the fact that I live and work and walk and go to the grocery store around people who feel alone. It's why you have so many kids and adults now glued to that little thing they hold in their hand. They call it a smartphone, but instead it's more like oxygen. Because as long as they have it, they don't feel alone. It's why they will decide while driving down the road, operating a vehicle, doing 100 feet per second, that they will hear a buzz and decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick up that phone and I'm going to read it while I'm throwing my body down the road. And I will risk everybody else's health and safety so that I can see that. It's this utter loneliness that we feel. And you can throw yourself into your jobs or into technology or into sports and there's still this sense of loneliness that comes up. We so desire to feel wanted and to have some kind of connection that our body rewires itself. There is a new syndrome that has begun to occur that has retrained our brains. Have you ever reached for your phone because you thought it was vibrating and you go to answer and see and it, nothing happened? Has that happened before? That happens more and more. Psychologists and scientists have done studies that say that when we have this itch in our leg, which 10 years ago we would have done this... Now instead, we feel that and we think, oh, maybe it's our phone. And we reach and we start to look and see so we can get that, oh, I'm not alone anymore. God understands. 
And when He sent His Son Jesus, He showed us in a very real way that He is a God who reaches out for the lonely. I want to take just a few minutes this morning and I'll, I'll try to be brief. You, you've heard some part of this sermon at some point. It's my favorite sermon in the Bible. It's my favorite section. Jesus had His. It was the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. He did the same one several times. So I figure I can get away with sharing this one one more time. It's the greatest half story ever told, I call it. It's found in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 8. It's the story of Jairus and the bleeding woman. Jairus is rich, powerful, popular. He's a synagogue ruler. Everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. They want to name drop him. They love this guy. And so when he steps off, uh, when Jesus steps off the boat, they see Jairus coming. And half the crowd is really excited because they love Jairus, right? But he's also a synagogue ruler which makes him he, uh, uh, you know, a leader within the, the community of faith. Did Jesus get along with those folks? No. No. No, really, actually, his most harsh words are usually reserved for those who consider themselves uh, religious. And so here we have Jesus steps off the boat. He's with His disciples. Jairus starts to come through the crowd. And I can just imagine everybody parting as the flowing purple robe and the clanging gold chains work their way to the boat. And all the disciples kind of do this. They're getting ready because they know the fight is on. But Jairus gets right up to Jesus and what does he do? You better know this. He falls down at the feet of Jesus and he cries, My little daughter is dying. Please come and save her. There's no record of what Jesus says. But Jesus begins to go towards Jairus' house. I suspect that it went maybe something like this, that, that Jesus bent down and he grabbed the, the then muddy hand of Jairus. And he picked him up, and he says, let's go get your daughter. So this is a great story already. Everybody is super excited about it. This is awesome. They're all going towards Jairus' house. I love to imagine, we don't have any record of it, but I wonder what the apostles are thinking as they're heading that way. I suppose... Uh, that maybe Thomas is saying, wow, this is going to be awesome PR. It'll say in the paper the next day, Jesus heals synagogue ruler's daughter. It'll be great for us. Judas, who kept the treasury and liked to help himself a little to it, thought, wow, this will be great. We go to Jairus' house, we heal his daughter, and he gives us a little love offering. Won't that be nice? Everybody had their eyes focused on Jairus as they're heading to the house, but there is a woman in the crowd who isn't looking at Jairus. Instead, she's searching for Jesus. The Scriptures tell us that she has been bleeding for 12 years. What does it mean to be bleeding for 12 years? For us, not near as much as it meant for them because they had all these laws and customs that revolved around the idea of being clean and unclean. Right? And so they had these laws that if you were unclean and you touched somebody who was clean, you would make them unclean. Listen to this. If I'm an unclean person, which uh, any type of blood would make me unclean, 
If I am unclean and I choose to sit down on this pew, this is law, the pew is now unclean for the rest of the day. And if one of you makes the mistake of sitting on this pew, it's the first row, we would never do it, but if you made the mistake of sitting on this pew, you would be unclean. How bad was it? Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The priest and the Levite go around. Why did they go around? We don't know. Maybe they were mean. Maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe they saw somebody covered in blood and said, if I touch that person, I'll be unclean, and I want to worship God today. And worshiping means going to the temple, not stopping to help someone. If I'm an unclean person, and I'm walking down the road, and I see you... I have to let you know of my state of uncleanliness. I have to yell out, unclean! So you know to go around me. For 12 years, 12 years, this woman wasn't allowed to go to the market. She wasn't allowed to go to the temple to worship. Not in the outer courts, nowhere. Most likely she was quarantined like the rest of the outcast because of her uncleanliness. Scripture tells us that she spent everything that she had on doctors, but instead of getting better, she got worse. I want to take just a quick side note. Their doctors are a little different than ours. They didn't offer out prescriptions. They did some things a little bit uh, unusual. They had this belief that in order to, to stop the flow of blood, one of the things that you could do is carry around a barley corn found in the dung of a female white donkey. If you had gone to a doctor and said, I'm having this trouble, he would have said, go get the barley corn. 